Pot Stirrer Podcast, where politics, religion, and history collide. And it's not always polite. The ESPN series OJ Made in America, which first aired in 2016, chronicled the life of OJ Simpson from his glory days playing football and later becoming a Hollywood actor to his criminal trial for allegedly killing his wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and her friend, Ron Goldman, as well as the trial's aftermath. The O.J. Simpson trial in 1995 was racially tinged in its content and in reactions from observers around the country, and Americans were split on their belief in O.J.'s guilt or innocence, largely along racial lines. Attorney Carl Douglas, who was part of O.J.'s defense team, notes towards the end of the series that even though O.J. was acquitted of murder, for those who believed him to be guilty, who were predominantly white, it wasn't game over for them. After the trial was what Douglas called the fifth quarter. It's like if one team wins the football game, but the losing team beats up the winning team in the parking lot. Those who thought O.J. got away with murder would exact retribution even though he had been found not guilty in a court of law. And besides the decision in the civil trial, where O.J. was found responsible for the murders in order to pay $25 million, O.J.'s later trial, conviction, and 33-year sentence for robbery constituted the fifth quarter. The judge in that case wasn't sentencing him for robbing memorabilia dealers of his own stuff. O.J. was being sentenced in retribution for the prosecution not making their case in the murder trial. The history of Detroit and of America is a lot like this. Detroit is a microcosm of America. There are things that need to be dealt with fully in the United States in order for the country to continue to advance and truly be a shining city on a hill. But because of the stubborn refusal over time to fix what was broken from the start, we are now living out the fall of Rome. I am your host, Jay Poole. In part one of this two-part series, I talked about how investment and accountability is what fosters a thriving city, state, and country. In part two, I want to talk about the fatal flaw. What is the fatal flaw that has led to the failure of America? When the U.S. Constitution was being drafted, a bone of contention was how to count population size for the purposes of congressional representation. By this time, northern states were moving away from slavery but the South relied on slaves to keep their agrarian economy going and their cotton and tobacco fields growing. Because slaves did not vote, some of the founders did not want to include them in the population for the sake of representation. But others, especially those from the South, wanted slaves to count as part of the population. Now make no mistake, they did not want slaves to have a political voice. Slaves were in a strange limbo where they were considered chattel rather than human but slave owners often feared their slaves learning how to read and write and were in constant fear of rebellions. You generally don't worry about your horses or cows staging rebellions in mass or learning how to read and write. So on some level, they had to know they owned human beings. But anyway, while Southern-based founders didn't want their slaves to actually vote, they wanted slaves to be counted in the census as a full person so they could gain greater representation in Congress. So to compromise, the founders settled on three-fifths. 
Slaves would be counted as three-fifths of a full person for representation purposes only. The seed was planted in America when the founders chose to compromise, to appease, and to essentially write the enslavement of other humans into the U.S. Constitution. And before you say, but Jay, those were different times. During slavery, there were abolitionists. During segregation, there were integrationists. When the Nazis were dominating Europe, there was the resistance. In each time in history, when evil is accepted by most members of society, there are people who choose right. These are not unicorns. Let's stop excusing our ancestors for perpetuating evil or remaining silent in the face of it. That seed planted during the founding of the U.S. is leading to its decline today. So let's fast forward to the 1860s. In 1863, while the North and South were in the middle of the Civil War and brother was pitted against brother due to the South's unwillingness to walk away from slavery, Detroit experienced a race riot. This happened during the trial of a biracial man who had been falsely accused of molesting a young white girl. While the trial was going on, angry white mobs descended on a black neighborhood, looting businesses and burning them to the ground. Two deaths occurred during the riot. The Michigan legislature encouraged compensation to victims who incurred damages to their homes and businesses due to the riots. But the Detroit City Council, who were dominated by Democrats who sympathized with the slave-owning South, refused to do so. But what they did do was institute a full-time police force for the city of Detroit. The police force was made up of whites, especially white ethnics, and minorities were kept from joining. This is the genesis of tensions between police and the black community in Detroit that has lasted well over a century. In the early 1900s, as Henry Ford was innovating with the automobile, and Detroit was becoming the Motor City, black Americans in Detroit and in America as a whole were left out of much of that prosperity. The reason for that is because during most of the 20th century, unions were in control of labor practices in just about every industry in the U.S. On one hand, unions created a prosperous middle class in Detroit and elsewhere. On the other hand, this did little for black Americans during the first half of the 20th century. Some unions, including the American Federation of Labor, or AFL, later merged with another union to become the AFL-CIO, did not admit blacks. Many who did guided white and black workers into different types of jobs, essentially segregating the races and depressing the wages of blacks. Because of the tenuous relationship between blacks and most trade unions, blacks were often used by industrial employers, such as Henry Ford, as scabs or strike breakers when the white union members would go on strike. So many of the union leaders, as well as rank and file, saw black people as the enemy instead of a group of people that they would do well recruiting. Some unions later began to see that having blacks on the outside as ready scabs only hurt their cause and voluntarily admitted them, or if they already did, began instituting non-discrimination policies, while other unions only admitted black Americans when they were faced with lawsuits during the civil rights era. There were not only challenges for black Detroiters in the early to mid-1900s in terms of employment, but also in terms of housing. You see, waves of black Americans moved to Detroit from the South during this time period as part of the Great Migration. 
The Great Migration is the movement of Black Americans to the North, especially Northern cities from the South, in search of better economic opportunities than they had in the South, as well as to escape de jure or legal segregation. The first major wave of the Great Migration was between 1915 and 1930, while the second wave was during the 1940s and 50s. In Detroit, the Great Migration boosted the Black population exponentially. My birth mom's family was part of the first wave in the early 1900s. My great-grandparents settled in the predominantly Black neighborhood of Black Bottom. We'll get to Black Bottom in a moment. My dad's family was part of the second wave. When my grandmother moved to Detroit with my dad when he was a baby, the house they moved into on Atkinson Street, blocks away from the Atkinson Historic District that had been integrated for some time, had a racially restrictive covenant as part of the deed that was only rendered invalid a few years previously in 1947. Restrictive covenants or language written into the deed barring the purchase, lease, or occupation of property to a specific group, usually Black Americans, were common in the first half of the 20th century, all over the country, but especially popular in northern cities. You see, in the South, blacks and whites generally lived near each other. This was a legacy of slavery. So segregation was enforced in public accommodations to perpetuate the racial order and to keep the races from mingling. But in the North, there was little legal segregation because it was enforced in housing through these restrictive covenants. Restrictive covenants were a way to keep the races separate without drafting a law to do so. These were legally enforceable at the time. Violating the covenant meant you would forfeit your property. And if that wasn't enough, homeowners associations would push for enforcement. In Detroit, 80% of homes outside the inner city had racially restrictive covenants. In 1947, the Michigan Supreme Court ruled these covenants unenforceable and the U.S. Supreme Court ruled them unenforceable everywhere in 1948. Unenforceable meant that if a homeowner chose to sell or rent to blacks, the covenant could not be enforced, but homeowners could discriminate if they chose. This was outlawed in 1968 with the Fair Housing Act, but these covenants remain in the deeds even to this day, even if they cannot be used legally. And these have still been used as guiding language, steering blacks away from certain neighborhoods and perpetuating housing segregation. In Detroit, for the early half of the 1900s, the neighborhoods black Detroiters commonly lived in were Black Bottom and Paradise Valley. Black Bottom was called as such, not because of the race of the residents, but because of the dark, rich soil that existed in the area. It was a residential neighborhood of poor and working-class Blacks, many of whom arrived in Detroit during the Great Migration. There were an estimated 350 Black-owned businesses in Black Bottom, including doctors, lawyers, restaurants, general stores, pharmacies, and entertainment. The nearby neighborhood of Paradise Valley was largely an entertainment district of thriving Black-owned businesses that catered to residents of Black Bottom, as well as whites in other parts of Detroit who are looking for a good time. According to the Detroit Historical Society, Paradise Valley was home to theaters, nightclubs, music venues, and vice. So what happened? Well, the interstate system happened. You see, the idea of slum clearance was popular in the 30s, 40s, and 50s among city planners around the country. It sounded great in theory, clearing out housing that was run down, 
like shacks without proper plumbing or tenements that were fire hazards, to build public works in middle-class communities. But little thought was given to why these rundown neighborhoods existed, who lived there, or what would happen to the residents once they were moved out. In Detroit, only small pockets of the city were available for blacks to live, and they generally had to rent. It was almost impossible for blacks to obtain financing to buy homes due to both local discrimination and federal regulations marking black communities high risk for home loans and mortgage subsidies. And landlords often charged up to 40% more rent to blacks than whites. And in these homes and apartments where black people were forced to live, the landlords had no incentive or drive to keep up their properties. So these homes were left to rot. As the Great Migration exploded the black population in the city, the available housing failed to keep up with the pace, leading to overcrowded conditions. This was a common occurrence in various cities in the U.S. Because of housing segregation, especially in the North, blacks were often relegated to poor areas of town with few amenities or services, essentially slums. So when the interstate system was being planned out in the 1950s, the freeways constructed through urban centers were generally built through black enclaves, destroying close-knit neighborhoods, shuttering thriving black-owned businesses, and destabilizing communities. In Detroit, I-75 and the short jaunt I-375 that juts from 75 into downtown Detroit were built in the 1960s, and these would run right through Black Bottom and Paradise Valley, wiping both neighborhoods off the map and displacing residents. This was not unique to Detroit. The same thing happened in many places, including Cincinnati, where an I-75 was constructed through the West End in the 1950s and 60s, tearing down the black neighborhood of Kenyon Bar, scattering black Cincinnatians across the city to other neighborhoods like Avondale and Bond Hill, destroying black-owned businesses and tearing apart community bonds. Many conservatives cite black lawlessness for the 1967 Detroit riots which happened not long after the building of the freeway system and as the reason for white flight. While the 1967 riots surely didn't help, white flight in Detroit was happening well before the riots. Among several causes, it was the decline of the racially restrictive covenants, the interstate system, as well as the GI Bill, which allowed whites to move into suburbs blacks did not have access to, that led to white flight. A police raid of a celebration for returning Vietnam veterans at a blind pig was the match that set off the 1967 riots. But at least a century of discrimination, segregation, racial violence, and destruction of black communities by urban renewal constituted the fuel. Potstirer Podcast will be back after this. Did you know for today's episode? The Did You Know segment is back. It may not appear in every episode, but periodically I'll share information that's not well publicized so you can stay informed. Today, let's talk a little about Chicago. Chicago is now the buzzword or shorthand for tropes regarding black-on-black murder and gangland violence. Chicago is often used to deflect from the issue of police brutality by people who care about neither. The fact is, most violence among all races is committed within one's own race. And poverty and despair is what generally leads to violence. Not lawlessness, not broken families, not Democrats, not race. 
Plenty of white people kill each other. Most serial killers and mass murderers in the U.S. are Caucasian, and you don't see people of color in affluent neighborhoods killing each other on a daily basis. What does drive violence in poverty-stricken areas in cities like Chicago is often drugs and gangs. Part of the challenge with the latter is figuring out who's in a gang. Did you know that the police in Chicago have a semi-secret database of suspected gang members riddled with outdated information and errors, and that the database can be accessed for various purposes, such as employment background checks? According to research conducted by ProPublica, the database includes people in their 70s and 80s who long left a life of crime, as well as people who've never been arrested for a crime at all. Being mentioned by a trusted police informant or just living in a certain neighborhood, as one police officer disclosed, can get you on the list. And much like the no-fly list, once you're on Chicago's gang list, it's almost impossible to be removed. 70% of the individuals on the gang list are black, and about 25% are Latino. And speaking of the demographics of the list, what is considered a gang is also concerning. The Black Panthers, who were and are a political group, are in the database. According to ProPublica, some law enforcement officials have viewed them as a gang or group of insurrectionists rather than the political organization they are. As recently as 2015, Chicago police opened an investigation on current Black Panthers after they participated in Black Lives Matter protests. It leads many to question what the gang list is truly about. Is it about curbing violence and saving lives, or about tracking a subset of the population, including law-abiding citizens, based on politics and other dubious criteria? It's like COINTELPRO all over again. Now, back to Potstirer Podcast. Firsts are hard. It's not being first that's the problem. It's the resistance you get once you've succeeded that almost makes it seem like you never succeeded at all. Coleman A. Young was the first black American mayor of Detroit. Young was a Tuskegee Airman during World War II and after the war was involved in union leadership. This led him to be called to testify before the House Un-American Activities Committee, or HUAC, the committee called by Congress to root out communism in U.S. institutions around the 1950s. Young refused to answer questions about being involved in communism and defied the committee. He later became a Michigan state legislator and gained a reputation for being left-wing. But when he took office in 1974, he ruled somewhat conservatively. He kept the budget balanced almost all the time he was in office, even as the population of Detroit and the tax base was steadily dropping. He was willing to cut city maintenance and services to keep the books balanced. In the 1970s, Young closed a number of recreation centers as the city declined in population. Also, while Young and the city's police department were often at odds, he also supported the idea of being tough on crime. Most famously, or infamously, depending on who you ask, Young made the statement, I issue a warning to all those pushers, to all ripoff artists, to all muggers. It's time to leave Detroit, hit 8 Mile Road. This was not a call for criminals in Detroit to victimize the suburbs, as Oakland County Executive and Terrible Human, Elbrooks Patterson, says. 
Young's statement was a tough-on-crime statement. Hit the road, Jack. No different than any conservative politician preaching law and order and keeping out crooks. The only difference was the shade of the guy who said it. The Black community in Detroit, having dealt with decades of indignities, thought they finally had a voice in collective control over their destiny with the election of Coleman Young. But that's not what they got. Coleman Young, who was mayor of Detroit for 20 years, is often blamed for the decline of Detroit. And to be fair, he did make a lot of mistakes, which happens when you're in office for much longer than you probably need to be. And corruption within the city government was commonplace. But the political rhetoric between the city and the suburbs exacerbated the decline of the region overall, as industry was leaving Michigan and geographic and racial tensions in Metro Detroit overlapped. Conservative politicians like Patterson stoked the fires of racial and geographic strife to amass loads of wealth and political power for themselves. But ultimately, the lack of cooperation between city and suburbs strangled the city, and while the suburbs were thriving, it limited their full potential as well. Lack of investment had its roots in that fatal flaw. From the 1970s through the early 2000s, Detroit experienced its own fifth quarter. When Barack Obama was elected to the presidency in 2008, many Americans mistakenly believed we were transitioning into a post-racial era. He was a dynamic Democratic junior senator and had a great deal of community organizing experience. Some Republicans snicker at Obama's community organizing, but it mattered because unlike more established politicians, Obama had spent a lot of time with regular people, not just lobbyists, so he knew how to mobilize everyday people to get involved and vote. He was painted as a left-wing radical for his associations, but once he became president, he governed as a third-way centrist, continuing many of the economic and foreign policy decisions of his predecessor, Republican George W. Bush. The Affordable Care Act was a conservative bill that was supported by conservatives until Obama adopted it. Obama sought compromise from politicians created in the mold of Elbrooks Patterson, conservatives who refused to work with him, yet they would call him divisive. Even though Obama and Young had different styles, Obama smooth and engaging, Young brash and confrontational. Both were progressives who dialed it back while in office, but are often judged based on reputations that they didn't earn. The election of Donald Trump and the undoing of progressive gains simply to get back at America's first black president, that's America's fifth quarter. Hi, I'm Jay, and I want to tell you about my new podcast, This Zennial Life. It's a weekly short burst of stories, insights, health and wellness tips, and more from a Zennial who is still a work in progress. Go to thiszennialife.wordpress.com for details. Listen to This Zennial Life today. I was a weird kid. I was watching the news and listening in on my parents' conversations about politics while my peers were playing with dolls and gossiping about which new kid on the block they liked. By the time I was 11, I was learning about police brutality since it was a major topic on the news. Some things never change. Back in 1992, the videotaped beating of unarmed motorist Rodney King by LA police and the riots in Watts in the wake of the officers' acquittals polarized the nation 
much like what happens today when unarmed and legally armed black men are murdered by the police state with impunity. While the rest of the country was paying attention to California, in Detroit, we were paying attention to a similar case here at home. But there were two differences at the start. One, the beating was not captured on tape. Two, the victim died. Channel 7's Frank Turner was the first reporter on the scene, and he spoke with witnesses who helped him reconstruct the attack in all of its viciousness, and he joins us now live from Detroit Police Headquarters downtown. Frank? As of right now, seven Detroit police officers, including a sergeant who stood by and watched this incident without intervening, have been suspended without pay. At the scene, Malice Green's blood still runs in the street at West Warren and 23rd on the city's southwest side. It was there that at 10.30 last night, he was beaten to death, according to witnesses, by two white police officers of the 3rd Precinct's so-called Booster Squad. Those officers have been identified as Walter Butson and Larry Nevers. They are plainclothes officers who ride around the neighborhood in an unmarked car. Now, Green was stopped on Warren at 23rd when the officers approached him. He had something balled up in his fist, according to witnesses, that he wouldn't show the officers. And according to them, that aggravated the police officers, and using their flashlights, they just started beating him. And when they pulled him over, they told him to get out of the car, get out of the car, and asked him what was the problem. And, and then they went there saying, open your hand. He had his hand balled up like I got this key, and he had it balled up, and he wouldn't open it. All of a sudden, they came up behind just like hitting him in the back of the head and pushed him down. He just went unconscious. His eyes were open, but he wasn't moving. And they kept beating him? They kept hitting him until he fell out unconscious. Daisy Baker says he could only watch helplessly and in horror as 35-year-old Malice Green was savagely beaten by the two plainclothes police officers. How many blows you think? I wasn't counting, but I could see it had to be at least about eight a piece. Was he fighting back? He wasn't struggling? fighting back. He had his hands up till his hands just fell down. He wasn't even fighting back. All of this was just minutes after Green stopped to talk to this man from his car. And officers Butson and Nevers, known as Starsky and Hutch, rolled up. I don't know what it did then. He had his hand balled up, and they said, what you got in your hand? And then they went to beating him. That man, that's... Did they drag him out of the car? No, they beat him in the car. They beat him in the car, then the other one went on the other side, opened the driver's side door, and man, they, they, they beat him down like a dog. Did, did he do anything at all? Did he no, 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 other than not open his hand, they beat his knuckles first, man, this stuff first. Did he have drugs in his hand? I have no idea. I have no idea. Witnesses by the dozen were either standing nearby or driving past as the beating took place, but the reputation of Starsky and Hutch keeps most off camera. When I turned around and came back, I saw blood all over the car and blood in the street and the officer yelling at him and I saw the officer striking once with his flashlight in his head. Was he fighting back at all? No, he wasn't, you know, he he was like, at that point he seemed like he was already, you know, powerless. And who was striking yeah. him, the plainclothes officer? The plainclothes officer was struck him with his flashlight. Did he ever make his way out of the car? Uh-uh, uh-uh. They had to drag him out of the car. They had to. They told us to leave. So we left, and next thing I know, he laying out in the street full of blood. And when we left and came back out, the emergency was out there, all right? They then, wouldn't touch it. They wouldn't touch it. Then they came back and started hitting the guy again. He wanted no defense to do nothing to nobody. Even, even after EMS showed up? They hit him a couple more the times. A couple more times. 
So I wanted to help him, but what I'm gonna do then, I just be getting licks. I wanted to just say something, but you know, I ain't, what can I do? What can we, we couldn't do nothing. I thought they gonna stop at the wire. Well, I thought he might have had something in the car, like weapons or a big amount of drugs or something, but it was just a routine traffic stop. Or he must have might have seen him buy drugs or something. I don't know what made him do it though. And then he got out, and the man got out to open his back of his truck up and just wiped the bullet off the flashlight and put it back where he had it at. On November 5th, 1992, 35-year-old unarmed motorist Malice Green was stopped by an unmarked police car by plainclothes police officers Walter Budson and Larry Nevers for suspected drug activity. When confronted, Green allegedly had a vial of cocaine that he didn't want to let go of. Because of Green's refusal to let go of the drugs, Nevers beat him in the head with his flashlight approximately 7 to 14 times. Green was taken to Detroit Receiving Hospital for his injuries, but he was dead on arrival. The case was polarizing in a region that was already divided by race. In the mostly black city, the decision by Detroit prosecutors to charge the officers responsible was seen as a positive. These officers, who were long-term veterans of the police force, had a reputation in the community for excessive force, yet were still on the force without punishment and many were cautiously optimistic for convictions. It seemed to be clear that the cops killed Green and it wasn't justified. But it was also clear the cops in L.A. beat Rodney King, even more so since that was on tape, and they got off. In the white suburbs, the common opinion was that the officers were victims of a witch hunt by overzealous prosecutors in a dilapidated black city many of them abandoned long ago. The trial was held in the summer of 1993. This was our trial of the century, but the trial for Butson and Nevers would go differently than the trial for the cops in LA. While there were other officers at the scene of Green's murder that either saw their charges dropped or were acquitted, Butson and Nevers were convicted of second degree murder. Like OJ, black Detroiters cheered, white suburbanites were outraged. Both Butson and Nevers appealed their convictions and both were overturned on technicalities, but both were later convicted in new trials of involuntary manslaughter. Butson got time served and is now living a private life. Nevers had a longer sentence, but was later released, wrote a book, then died in 2013. But the fate of Detroit in the aftermath of the original convictions was a bit more swift. The trial for Butson and Nevers was held at Detroit Recorder's Court, which was a court specific to the city of Detroit, established in 1824 that tried all felony cases in the city. Because it was a city-specific court, the judges in that court were mostly black, and many were natives of the city. In 1997, the state passed a law abolishing the recorder's court, along with probate courts in the state, and folding them into the county circuit courts. Wayne County, the county Detroit is located in, was and still is mostly Caucasian, so folding the recorder's court into Wayne County Circuit Court meant that the recorder's court judges would have to run for their seats in a county that would be less open to them, and it also meant that Detroiters lost much of the influence they had on their own justice system. Then, in 1999, the state required Detroit to remove their residency requirements for Detroit police officers and other city officials. Prior to this, Detroit, like a lot of other municipalities, required police officers to live within the borders of the city of Detroit. The idea behind residency requirements is that officers would feel more invested in the communities they police. 
and the people they interact with would be their neighbors, not people they're unable to relate with. Maintaining the geographic and racial order was more important than accountability. After the residency requirement was lifted in Detroit, fewer and fewer officers chose to live in a city. In 2001, 20% lived outside the city, and just last year, 75% of officers lived outside the city, and of those making $100,000 or more a year, 80% live outside the city. This has meant more money in taxes and consumer spending flowing from Detroit taxpayer pockets out of the already cash-strapped city. Also, for a city that has had a history of strained relations between the police and community, having officers who had no lived experience with the people they serve only exacerbates the issue. Like the abolishment of Recorder's Court, the barring of residency requirements for Detroit police was a direct attack on the ability of Detroit residents to have any agency in running where they lived. The result is that Detroiters are policed by outsiders and judged by outsiders, and Detroit tax money flows only one way, out. And this can be traced in large part to a trial in which a mostly black jury convicted white cops of killing an unarmed black man, the fifth quarter indeed. But this vindictiveness hasn't just hurt Detroit. Sure, the suburbs have largely prospered while the city has faltered. But the area and the state could be so much more if only folks like Elbrooks Patterson who has stood in the way of integrated public transit and other city-suburban cooperation for decades, realized they need Detroit. Earlier this year, Amazon struck Detroit off its list of locations in the running for its second headquarters. Part of the reason was its lack of comprehensive public transit. Thanks, Brooks. But the primary reason was an insufficient talent pool in the region. A lot of the reason why that is is the lack of educational investment. Detroit has closed most of its public schools in the last several years, and some charter schools, which have not proven they actually perform better, have taken their place. If you want to know why Betsy DeVos is so horrible as Secretary of Education, look at the education system in Michigan and its over-reliance on charter schools, public money going into private pockets with little to show for it. That was her gig before gracing America's schools with her presence. The other reason for the smaller talent pool is the brain drain hitting both Detroit and its suburbs. For a long time, the motto was, those who can, leave. Especially as businesses have left the region and the housing crisis hit the area hard, it was no longer good enough to leave the city. Leaving the region, including the suburbs, seemed a more attractive option. And when you lose people, you lose talent and investment, which is a negative for everyone. But there's hope. There are positives to the story of Detroit. As abandoned homes are being torn down and barren fields dot the Detroit landscape, parts of it are being rebuilt. Artists, professionals, and others are moving into the city. Businesses are moving into the city. There are people investing in Detroit's return to grace. Detroit is like a lot of places in the U.S., there's some bad and some good. We should remember and reform the bad, and we should support the good. America is like that right now, some bad and some good. Our government lacks accountability, and they are pursuing austerity and rubber-bearing legislation over investment in building this country up. But the rise of Trump has empowered people, the young and idealistic, 
as well as those of us who were old and asleep and woke up to a nightmare, to be involved in writing the ship. We need to fight through to the end of America's fifth quarter. The sun never sets on the Roman Empire until it does. Check out our website today, potswearpodcast.com, for previous episodes, special presentations, announcements, merch, and all things Potstirer Podcast. You can find our show on iTunes, Google Play, and most other podcatchers. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, give us five stars, leave a review, share, and tell your friends. Thank you for listening and supporting Potstirer Podcast. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free.